WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening, folks. This is Matt Moniz stepping in for Tim Weisberg, who's out on assignment. I'm in the studio here with Matt Costa and have Christopher Balzano on Skype. We have an interesting show for you tonight. We're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to have our content director, Mr. Christopher Balzano, try and host the show from his lovely home in Florida. We'll be talking with F.J. Lennon the author of Soul Trapper, and later on in the evening we'll also be talking with Isaac Marion, uh, the author of Warm Bodies. Uh, but first I want to say, how are you doing tonight, Mr. Matty? You think all our... Uh, doing pretty good. I think uh, I'm pretty confident about this show. All right. Well, <laughs> I have confidence in your abilities. I think uh, this is our first time trying to do these particular type of connections, and sometimes technology doesn't always work in the studio, as yeah. we've found. But Although uh, I'm sure Tim's somewhere out in the uh, ether, yeah, <laughs> uh, scowling <laughs> at our performance right now. Uh, but that's but fine. Can you uh, guys hear me? We Ye- can. Yes, we can. Can you hear <laughs> us? Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, this is uh, this is gonna kind of be like a spooky South Coast of Directors cut. People are gonna get a, <laughs> a look behind the veil at uh, all the little things we have to do to make the show run by trying to run from actually four coasts tonight or four uh, four corners of the country tonight. Yes, and spooky TV unfortunately is down. There's you know communication issues and other equipment issues that uh, let's just say we didn't feel like dealing and addressing with. But but we're happy that we got all of this working. You sound all right out there, Chris. Beautiful feeling, right? I wasn't quite sure if anyone could actually see if there was a camera on here and spooky TV could see the getup I have now uh, to try to get so there's no feedback and everything's going clear. It would be a uh, it would be scarier than anything we've ever covered on the show, but yeah. let's just say uh, we've got it under control, and I think this is going to be an amazing show tonight. All right. Can you give us a little background on our guest tonight, Chris? Sure. Our first guest tonight is going to be F.J. Lennon. Uh, we're going to be talking to him actually out in L.A. He's a writer and independent interactive uh, executive producer and designer. This is a guy who has spent a lot of time uh, making iPhone apps, making video games, computer graphics, things like that, and this is his first novel. Um, but it's actually developed from a very, very popular iPhone app called Soul Trapper. And so this is kind of taking the, the, uh, we've always talked on the show about how, you know, TV influences the books and the books influence the TV and the influence, the, this is kind of the next level of that. This is actually an iPhone app that has become a, a novel. And it's kind of these main characters and especially this device known as the Soul Trapper is the, uh, is the driving force behind the novel. So I'm very interested to talk to him tonight about that. Yeah, pop culture uh, influencing literature. Not uncommon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, I just think it's, I mean, we all have, you know, they've, they've of course, especially my kids, if you talk to my kids, they, uh, they have all of the uh, the books that are based on the video games and things like that, but this is kind of like a, a very adult uh, version of, of kind of what my kids have been experiencing. Ah, Chris? Uh-oh. 
<laughs> like I said, modern technology at work. Dang, how he developed this whole idea of the soul trapper. Ah, you, you disappeared there for a quick second, Chris. We all should just let people know you are near the Bermuda Triangle, aren't you? <laughs> I am actually just outside the Tampa Triangle, so uh, we're contact. We're communicating one triangle to another. Ah. <laughs> okay, Chris. Um, shall we try and bring up our first guest for you? Yeah, sounds perfect for me. Hello, Mr. Lennon. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, is this Chris? This yes, is how are you doing, FJ? Am I speaking to Chris or Matt? Yeah, I'm, I'm Chris. And I'm Matt. Okay. <laughs> All right, I, I've, I've officially now hijacked the show. And so I'm can you hear me? To you. How does that sound? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, good. I got a little echo, but I'll do my best to ignore it. Beautiful. Can you hear me, Mr. Lennon? Can you hear Christopher? Uh, no, I can't. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, well, that's an issue. Yeah, that's going to be an issue. All right. Um, but I can hear the both of you fine. Both of us? Well, okay, this is Matt. Okay, I can hear Matt fine. Okay, now I'm going to let Christopher speak. Can you speak, Chris? Okay. Yes, FJ, can you hear me okay? Nope, I can't hear him, sorry. No, okay. <laughs> it's like an okay. EVP session right Yeah, here. This, this is going to be very interesting. Um I'm not sure exactly. I'm, I, I think I'm going to have to relay crit all of Chris's questions to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Uh, Chris, this is going to make for interesting radio. I know. I know. We're, we're going to do the best we can while uh, the genius cost to try to figure out you know, what we can uh, do here. But um, I would probably start with just asking him about the Soul Trapper. What is the Soul Trapper and, and kind of how does it how does it work? Because gotcha. it's the center of the actual novel. All right. Uh, Mr. Lennon. Uh, yeah. Chris would like to know uh, if you could explain a little bit about the app Soul Trapper and how it influenced you in writing the book. Well, the the app was uh, developed actually right uh, before the iPhone was even released. Uh, well, it, it came out shortly after its release, but we um, tried to come up with a, um, a t you know sort of a take on old graphic adventure games um, from the late '80s, the Infocom games. Um, but we we tried to to take that concept and then make it an audio driven experience. So it was an audio adventure where you listened. It was three hours long, and you you know you had, it was very um, audio driven where you had to listen for clues and listen to the story and make choices along the way. So the um, it, it you know the game plot follows you know much the same plot as, as the novel, but the, uh, the 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 iPhone app did. Pretty well, and got some attention, including um, attention of a literary agent that I had uh, met many years ago, and uh, he had played it and heard it and thought it would, uh, you know, make for a good um, novel. And asked me if, if uh, you know, I thought I, I could write it. Um, wasn't sure. I, you know, I've, I've written nonfiction in the past, had that published. I've written a lot of interactive fiction over the years, but uh, I took a stab at it and wrote it and um, and, and landed a three book deal with it. So. Soul Trapper is the first book, and there's two more to follow. But uh, had there not been an iPhone app, um, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be the novel series. And it is the first uh, first time an iPhone app has ever been um, uh, transmedia, uh, and it has appeared as a as a novel. Excellent. Can you uh, 
tell our audience a little bit what uh, the App of Soul Trapper is actually about, what its premise is. Yeah, the premise is um, the protagonist of the story is Kane Price, who is a 27-year-old sort of social misfit from that lives in Hollywood. And he is in possession of a device called the Soul Trap. And the Soul Trap allows him to to track down and capture ghosts. But not only that, he can project his soul and his consciousness into the device and interact with these ghosts, find out why they're here, uh, what's keeping them here, and, um, you know, either help them or, or banish them or send them on, you know, give them a kick to the afterlife if they don't want to leave this life. So... Um, that's kind of the basic premise of the book. He's he's a, you know, he's he's he's, he's sort of a, a noir character. He's he's very flawed, but he has you know a good heart underneath it all. And uh, you know, trouble seems to find him constantly. Um, you know, he has a lot of relationships with women, and and they love him and hate him. And um, along the way, he sort of tries to fight his his paranormal. Um, his paranormal investigation persona. Um, he's a dabbling musician, but he, he just can't seem to stay out of it. So that's you know sort of the general premise of the story. And the, the plot of Soul Trapper focuses on uh, Haunted Church in Lompoc, California. And when Kane investigates, he finds that this church is, is haunted by a child, um, a little boy six years old, the ghost of a little boy. So he has to find out why that little boy is there. And, uh, and he, he decides to help him. So that takes him on a grand adventure in this life and the next. And, uh, and that's, that's the, uh, the, the, you know, the general plot without giving too much away of the first book. Ah. And, uh, I assume the following books is a continuation of the story or something yes. to it. Yeah. It's a, it's a continuation. Um, and it focuses, the second book is called Devil's Gate. It'll be out in February of 2012. I'm Finished with it right now. I'm sitting here with a rewrite on my desk um, and uh, working through that. But it focuses on uh, the Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena, California. It's a, a it's 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 also known as Suicide Bridge. And uh, over the course of its hundred year history, nearly hundred year history, um, you know, close to two hundred people have jumped off it. And it's uh, you know, it's it's earned the nickname uh, Suicide Bridge, and it's a very haunted place. So the focus of the second book is is is, is on on the bridge and the surrounding area, and uh, some of the you know the dark occult background of Pasadena. Ah. Now you said you've written nonfiction before, and my question to you: Would do you find it harder to write nonfiction or fiction? I I, I find it. Um, I think I find it harder to write fiction, but I find it much more rewarding. Um, you know, uh, it's. It's 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 difficult to to craft uh, you know a good plot that people haven't seen before or read before, and uh, and so there you know and it's and it's a very kind of a it's a long lonely road. I mean, even with nonfiction, you can interview people and you can um, you know interact a little bit more. So uh, fiction fiction's harder, but but I but I truly enjoy it. You know, I I, I feel such a sense of accomplishment when I finish a novel and you know people like it. It's just it's got me hooked, and I. I just hope this is the beginning. Well, obviously it takes more creativity to do uh, fiction because in nonfiction the people are there and they're the ones basically writing the story for you, whereas in fiction you have to come up with everybody's background, all of the details and everything. All of this has to be you know, birthed in your own mind first before you can put it down on 
paper, correct? Yeah, correct. And, and the, you know, I also try, with Soul Trapper and, and, and the sequel, Devil's Gate, I, I, I did not discuss it with anyone at all. Um, so I, I felt like I had to prove to myself that I could craft a plot and characters and weave them together and not have any holes in the plot and, and do that all myself. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, I have, I have that ability now to, to you know, I can, I can depend on myself to do it uh, multiple times. But it's, um, it, it, you know, it's difficult. It's a thriller, so, you know, and it's, you, you got to have a mystery element. you got to have uh, the supernatural element. So there's a lot going on, a lot to weave together. And it's, um, you know, it's a bit like, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, like a, a game of chess at times, getting the pieces in the right place and just letting the story unfold. So, oh, well, thank you for that. It's back online, gentlemen. Just hey, you know. Hey, I can hear you. <laughs> thank you, Sorry, Matt Costa. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Matt, for uh, for filling in there. I, I, no, I've been listening, but it's actually been coming out of my end. What I'd kind of like to know is for the for Kane, the main character, and, and for the tone of the book. You really took a a, uh, a parallel to like kind of film noir, uh, right. and I was wondering kind of why that was the decision you made having to uh, you know dealing with a topic like the paranormal. Well, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a big noir buff. That's that's the that's the biggest reason. I, I love it. I love Raymond Chandler. I love I love noir stories about L.A. I love um, the old movies. You know, and many uh, many years ago, about a decade ago, I did a, a computer game. That um, used the the image, the 3D image of Humphrey Bogart. So it was it was sort of resurrecting Humphrey Bogart and creating a noir adventure. And I steeped myself in 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 that kind of uh, in, in that kind of plotting and that kind of writing and that kind of style. And it just it just stuck. And I I just thought it was interesting. LA is such a, a timelessly noir place that I just wanted right. to take a crack at making making him. Uh, an homage to sort of Chandler and and, uh, and Satchel Hammond. character in the book. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. I, I think it is. I think that L.A. is, is an important character um, in the book. You know, the, the settings are all accurate. Um, you know, the, the places Kane goes and hangs out are places, you know, I, I still go and hang out, not as much as I used to, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really haunted city, you know, and it's it's got a great past, and, it seems like there's just it's a city driven on you know stardom and ego and a lot a lot of the uh, I think there are a lot of ghosts that don't want to leave because of that very reason. It's hard to give it up. Now we kind of start off the show talking about the Soul Trapper. You've done paranormal investigations yourself, and you've done a lot of research into the equipment people use. Where did you make the leap from you know from from Tesla and Edison and modern day paranormal investigators to the actual um, because this this is like no paranormal equipment that, that anyone I know has ever used. Where, where, how did you make that leap? Like, where was the where was kind of the inspiration, and then kind of where did you take it from there? Well, uh, you know, the inspiration. I mean, I I I, I kind of grew I grew up in a, in a in a house that had paranormal activity, and um, so it, it's nothing. You know, it's really nothing that's that's new to me. Um, and over, you know, I I think that I. You know, in the mid uh, 2005, 2006, Ghost Hunters came along, and, and the Ghost Adventures, the Ghost Shows, and they really brought that notion of paranormal investigating into the mainstream, and you know, all of the equipment that was that they're using. But I've always enjoyed, 
you know, reading about Edison, you know, and that it try, I mean, Edison was kind of the first person that ever received, you know, EVPs, and you know, he had devices and 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 crazy, you know, instruments and tools that he was trying to communicate with the dead. And you know, Tesla was such a fascinating character that I, you know, I just wanted to draw from some of that old, um, you know, some of those old legends, and you know, use things like crystals and work that into. You know, a device that allows Kane to communicate with spirits, and um, so you know, keeping the you know the the uh, EMF detectors and the audio recorders, but but mixing it with some kind of crazy enlightenment science that would um, kind of give it a unique twist. I found one of the uh, one of the most interesting things is the fact that they can manipulate the soul trapper. They can create their own environments. Um, they can manipulate the sound that's going in. Um, you know, why would a ghost ever want to leave? <laughs> I mean, uh, obviously, you know, Kane kind of gives into the temptation of creating an environment that he likes that he thinks the ghost will like. I mean, what what kind of further ways can you take that? Well, you know, I I, I think it's it's interesting because I mean, the, the the main reason Kane uses the soul trap is just to you know hunt down and catch a ghost and then send it on its way. And a lot of times, I mean, there's two reasons ghosts are here. There's you know, it, it basically, you know, the mythology of the book, it's kind of like they're here because they're bound to Earth or they're here because they don't want to leave or else they're here because they're hiding. And they're hiding from, you know, uh, a, you know a demon that they they perhaps sold their soul to. And um, so Cain has to give them a hard push out. But, you know, the, the environment itself is kind of neat because they can manipulate it, kind of like virtual reality, when he sends his soul in. So he can use that as kind of an interrogation technique at times, or as a as a reward, as he does with, you know, the little boy that he catches in Soul Trapper. I mean, he, he you know, it's a it's a very kind of scary, uh, you know, interrogation environment that he sort of reskins to to feel you know friendly to a child. So uh, you know, it almost it almost looks like a, a TV show from the fifties. So it's it's you know it's kind of a strategy that he can employ. And um, I just think it makes for some neat storytelling because, you know, with each ghost, uh, you know, there could be a ghost from three centuries ago or a ghost from two years ago. So it, it's it's kind of fun how he can sort of go in there and interrogate, manipulate, and find out what the real story behind these ghosts are. And have you gotten feedback from investigators you know or just other investigators as kind of the, the rules and the mythology you create for the books? Um, not really, no. I've, I've, I'm anxious to get some feedback like that. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's certainly welcome. So if there are listeners out there, uh, you know, I, w- I would love to hear, uh, you know, from any paranormal investigator as to. But you know, I kind of want to. I, I, I look at, I look at, uh, you know, something like Ghost Hunters, and I, you know, there's, there's these episodes where they do have children, and it's like, well, you know, why are there children ghosts and you know what? Why could that be? And, and you know, so I, what I was just trying to do with the book is create answers to my own questions, and then give. And that became the basic mythology behind you know the story, uh, and and you know why ghosts are here, what keeps them here, uh, what they you know what they might be hiding from here, and um, you know there's there, there there are rules for all of the you know all of the ghostly interaction, but they're they're kind of derived from my own imagination and. Sitting around wondering why why do ghosts do certain things? Why are some nice? Why are some not? And I think now that I'm off the Skype line, do we do we have a call in line open now, Matt? Oral? 
Well, let's put it this way. If they call in, we lose you. <laughs> you can never truly lose me. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, mean, I'm, I mean, one of the things that kind of moves the story forward <clears throat> is this emotion of things. You know, and Kane's kind of broken these in pieces, and a lot of that comes through in music. And so this might mean nothing to anyone that's listening, but I think it's an intriguing part of what is, what is his connection to Layla? Because, I mean, you, you have this, um, this amazing kind of subplot with the whole 27 concept, and he's, and he's got this kind of obsession with Layla. And uh, can you just get into that a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Kane is Kane's a dabbling musician. He, he's a guitarist, and um, he's sort of a, a closet guitarist. He's, you know, he's not out trying to stand under a spotlight. But he's... Um, over the course of the book, he becomes he's, he's he's way into rock and roll. So and you know vintage classic rock and roll that's his thing, and so he becomes obsessed with the song Layla, and the song Layla is a very very complex uh, guitar song. There's Eric Clapton, there's Dwayne Allman, and they're both you know phenomenal guitarists of different styles, but they play on the same song, and they play I think it's six tracks deep. I mean the the Six guitar tracks on that one song. So he decides, he's, Kane decides he's going to recreate it, all six tracks. And it becomes this source of obsession, and he doesn't really know why. But as the, as the plot unfolds, uh, you know, the little, the, the ghost of the little boy, it, he's, he's stuck in that, in that church because his mother told him he, uh, he had to stay there until she came back. She's a spirit. Kane must go. And find her, rescue her, bring her back, reunite her with her child. And in doing that, he basically falls in love with a ghost. And, uh, and that, you know, he realizes that, that she is, is really Layla. The words of the song, the music of the song. So his, his early obsession was, was a harbinger for what was to come, which is, um, this interaction that he has with, uh, with a woman who he's, you know, who he's never met anyone like her, but, uh, unfortunately, she's been dead for 50 years. I was wondering whether you had ever um, read or heard any of the, uh, the the work by, I guess, folklorist, I guess you could call him, uh, R. Gary Patterson. So, uh, sorry, can you say again? Uh, any of the work of R. Gary Patterson? Uh, no, I, I haven't, no. He's, he's been a guest on our show uh, before, and uh, one of the things he gets into is the fact that did Eric Clapton sell his soul? Um, okay. And are these people around him kind of falling off uh, one by one because of that? And and he also talks about a very um, you know well documented actually case of Dwayne Allman selling his soul. And so it, yeah. it ended up in a maybe in a bit of synchronicity actually having more to do with your book than maybe you even knew. Yeah, it, it's strange. There's there's been a lot of that in in writing both of these books. Um, Tremendous synchronicity. I mean, I was a fan of the song, but, you know, why exactly I chose that, I don't know. He wasn't a guitarist in the iPhone app. He wasn't a musician at all. It wasn't until I started to write the novel that this, this part of him came out, and I don't know where it came from. And, um, but, you know, I've heard, I've, heard the, I've heard stories about Clapton. I've heard stories about, you know, Dwayne Allman, who died at 25. I mean, it's amazing. And then, um, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, Aleister Crowley thing plays a big part in the next book, and it really that the very notion that you're talking about 
is um, is 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 what I focus on a lot in the second book. But you I know, highly it, suggest getting getting a hold of some of uh, R. Gary Patterson stuff because it will it will unveil all of these other kind of like little things that are working with that. And I actually absolutely I thought that I thought that Dwayne had died at twenty seven, so I thought it was even a, a tighter fit. You know, I, I think it was twenty five, but I'm not sure. It could be, but you know, there's that whole thing in the book about people who died at twenty seven. Uh, because Kane's that age and feels he's not going to get, you know, not going to see 28. Um, so it's it's great stuff. I mean, rock and roll mythology and and occult ties to rock and roll. I have had such fun researching. I mean, I can't tell you, but it is strange. There have been lots of little, uh, you know, elements of synchronicity. I mean, I could I could tell you a lot of them. And it's, uh, you know, especially with the second book I just finished, it, it was uh, it was pretty uncanny at times. It, it felt often like. You know, someone was holding my hand and guiding me around, and it was like, gee, who, you know, who's holding my hand here? Uh, well, you got to give us a little preview that. then, because you know, I, I think people who go out and, and your book is linked up to, and your site's linked up to our site. Um, give us a little preview. Give us one of those synchronicity moments that you uh, experienced writing the book. Yeah, w- with the second book. Either one's fine. I, yeah, why not the second book so that people can kind of uh, get a little taste in their mouth for the new one coming out or the next. Well, one. you know, it's it, it's funny. Uh, in the first book, um, you know, Kane uses a, an object to uh, to charge the, this device called the Iver, which allows him to communicate. A very, a very, you know, um, sort of Edison-like device that lets him talk to a spirit. And I, and you know, what powers that is a crystal, but it has to be a special supernatural crystal. So he had a he had a crystal, but you know, they fizzle out, they wear out, and he has to find another one. And he comes upon. Uh, a goblet owned by Aleister Crowley, and uh, I don't know why I picked that. You know, I, I, Crowley's a scary guy, and you know has a big occult background. And I thought, well, you know, that'll intrigue some people. And so I, you know, I, I included the, 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 you know, the crystal device that powers this is Aleister Crowley's goblet. End of story. And I just thought it was a nice, you know, touch. Well, in the second book, I, you know, I'm dealing with the, the haunted Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena. And, um, you know, where 200 people have jumped off, and I've been underneath, and it's absolutely a scary haunted place. I've had, I've had experiences happen there, and, and I swear at times, I think, you know, things that are, it's like a magnet underneath that thing that pulls people off. It's, it's a very, very scary place. Um, but, you know, I kept, I, I, I got to a point in the book, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, and I took a little break, and I, and, you know, about two miles away from the Colorado Street Bridge, is this place called Devil's Gate Dam, and it's a dam, and, uh, you know, it controls water flow from the mountains, you know, into, into Los Angeles. And then right beyond that is NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena was founded by a guy named Jack Parsons, who was a noted, you know, occultist. But he was also a, a disciple of Aleister Crowley. So it turns out Aleister Crowley has this, had a, you know, had his OTO lodge based in Pasadena. So it, 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 suddenly it was like this little throwaway object from the first book became a really important object in the second book. And Crowley, who was an afterthought, became, you know, a much bigger part of the second book with, you know, not only his past ties to Pasadena, but with his past ties to rock and roll. Excellent. We've got about about seven minutes left before we have to go on, before we have to uh, leave for the news. Um, how many of those places, kind of like you were talking about, the 
places you've been to. How many of those places in your book uh, that are kind of L.A. staples are places that you've been to or had experiences with, and how many of them were just kind of you pulled the lore out from things? Um, I, I, I've had experiences at the Frolic Room, which is Kane's favorite bar. Um, I, I was in there one night, and I looked in the mirror, and I I saw another face looking back at me. It was it was it was uh, it was crazy, and I, I hadn't been drinking that much yet. Um, so um, that that that's a place where I've had experiences. I'm a big fan of Musso and Frank in Hollywood, and while I really haven't had experiences there, you know the bartenders love to tell me theirs. But a Hollywood Forever Cemetery is another place where it's incredible. It's a very haunted place, and the, you know I say that late. You know the Grand Mausoleum. I've actually heard voices of. Uh, I heard, heard the voice of a woman near Valentino's grave twice in the daytime. You know, with witnesses, and it is absolutely something there. And not only there, but all over that cemetery. And, and like I said, it's it's some of the biggest egos that ever existed in Hollywood, and I don't think they want to leave. Um, they enjoyed the party too much here. So, uh, you know, there's there, there, uh, certainly the second book with the Colorado Street Bridge. I've had experiences there. And, uh, you know, Devil's Gate Dam and, and the whole works. And um, I think it just adds an element of authenticity to it that, you know, I hope comes through. Because I sure enjoy, you know, ghost hunting in L.A. I think it's just a great place. Do you think you need to experience something paranormal to... To write a good paranormal book yourself? I mean, do you think you need to kind of have that first-hand experience or even, you know, interview people who've had direct experiences to get that feeling? Or or is it something where it's so tied into uh, our culture today that it's really, you know, easy just to kind of put the shine on? I, I, I don't... I, I, think in, I think there's an element of authenticity that comes through. I, th- I do... I think if you're really going to write about it, you need to have experienced it. And it's not hard to experience it. If you look for it, you'll find it. You know, it, it, it's out there. And, um, you know, while I think, you know, you could potentially write about it pretty effectively, um, I, I just I, I can't help but believe, you know, it, what will help put you over the top is, is, that, is that realism. It's, 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 it's knowing what it feels like in your blood. And so are there any plans to kind of adapt, uh, reverse adapt, and have, and have Soul Trapper, this version of the story, make its way to a, uh, the iPhone computer and, and to have the rest of them kind of come out some way, or is this? Uh, are you working just strictly on the books now? I'm, I'm working. I, I, I'm working strictly on the books. Although I would love to see it, the iPhone, um, the iPhone series continue, and uh, you know it may, it may. It's still, it's still, it's still an option. And um, unfortunately, I, you know, I didn't own the company that produced the the iPhone app, so. Uh, um, you know, fingers crossed that it will continue in that form, but but hopefully it will, um, you know, it will catch on as a book series and, you know, perhaps even film, TV, whatever, someday. Excellent. We're going to work our best to uh, to get the word out there. Uh, Thank we've been you. Talking to F. J. Lennon. The book is Soul Trapper. Uh, it can be picked up just about anywhere. I think yeah, it, it's it's uh, you know it should it should be available. It's certainly available on Amazon and and your uh, digital Kindle and. And I, you know, uh, iBook, and uh, should be available in most retails. Excellent. His website is www.fjlevin.com. And uh, thank you very much for coming on. Are you going to come back on when the second book's out? Absolutely. If you would, if you would have me, I'll be there in a second. I'll be there the day it comes out. If you want, that'd be great. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for coming in tonight on phone via phone. Thanks, thanks Chris, and thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, thank you. Take care. Yep. Bye.
Thank you very so much. So we've reached the top of the hour. Did that inspire you, Matt? Are you going to go out and get that book? The book's actually here. Oh, that's beautiful. Are you going to go out and read that book? Excuse me? What was that, Chris? Uh, I, I think it's interesting, Matt. I'd, I'd be interested to get your take on it after you read it because, you know, because it is, I think, controversial to some. I don't want to get, you know, into it too much with them, but I think it's kind of controversial to some investigators, kind of. There's some, you know, let's manipulate science for the plot, but a lot of it is actually very intriguing things that potentially could happen. So I'd be interested to get your opinion after you read it. Um, not really a, that genre fan. <laughs> I'd oh, just read it. the book. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff Notes will be out next month. There you go. All right. Uh, I'll leave it at that then. Um, right. Now, can you give us a little uh, background on the next guy that we're going to have coming up after the news? Sure. This is, uh, we are having on Isaac Marion. He wrote a book called Warm Bodies. Um, and this is, uh, I guess I'll just tease it this way. The man coming up has decided to write I guess you could say a modern-day telling of Romeo and Juliet, only Romeo is a zombie. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> excuse me, it's going to be really intriguing to get, uh, to get kind of his background and, then, and the kind of the genesis of this book from him, because uh, this is definitely one that people have to read to experience and to get fully. Now, is Juliet a vampire, or, you know... No, Juliet is a, uh, Juliet is a normal person. It's actually... Um, it's maybe a step beyond where other vampire, other zombie books have taken, because this is kind of the world years, maybe, post-zombie invasion. And so she's actually uh, kind of the, the daughter of the person who's heading up the anti-zombie military movement. So they have entire cities set up already that are protected from the zombies, and there's whole zombie culture, and it's, it's just a, a very interesting ride. All right. I'll, we'll be looking forward to that. We still got few minutes before the uh, news break. What else have you been up to down there in uh, Florida land? Uh, not much. Not much, actually. One of the things I wanted to get your reaction to last week's show. Um, interesting. Definitely yeah. an, an interesting show. Um, do I agree with everything that he said? No. Uh, I don't think you need to be that stringent. Uh, some people look to, you know, Science is about the way you apply things, okay? It's an application. It's a, it's a methodology. As long as you are documenting the means in which you're doing something and to follow along your premise, that, that basically is the scientific principle. Uh, can you add more points or data points to it? Yes, but at, at, at the end, what do they mean? You, you understand what I'm saying? Right. right. Uh, I mean, he, his thing is he didn't think, you know, taking readings were were pertinent. Well, if you, that's your opinion. It's right. not, not that it's wrong in science. I mean, it's a data point. If you're taking a series of readings, it just shows that there's something that's changed. Bear in mind, instrumentation is just an augmentation of our own senses. This is why we use them in in investigations. Now, instrumentation is not influenced by, you know, speculation or or by culture or anything it just reacts to what's going on in its environment and EF in EMF meter will move because there are certain frequencies or magnetic fields moving in in its environment around it and that's what's it's measuring it's our interpretation of what 
what that is uh, comes into question. Uh, it's just like a camera. A camera will record whatever image is in front of it. It's our interpretation of what we see in that image. Same thing with uh, the audio recordings and, and, and the like. That makes sense? Oh, of course, inspired by last week's uh, show, I actually, if people want to go to our main page, you know, SpookySouthCoast.com, I actually posted the article you had written a few years ago, a uh, scientist who is, a, uh, who is skeptical but not a skeptic. Yep. Uh, so people can kind of go on, on the site and check out that article. I've also actually posted, um, just because they've been in the news a lot lately, an article I wrote a few years ago about the connection between science and, and understanding and how that reacts to religion. And just for the, you know, just not leave him out, I posted his old article from, uh, from the, uh, the Standard Times. Don't worry, Standard Times, I have not copied and pasted it into our website. I've put a link onto your site so you guys can read that. And basically tonight's front page is all about, uh, the, kind of the articles that we've written kind of that touch upon this subject. So I definitely encourage people to go on there and check that out. I, I, Especially during our commercial break. It's good reading. Yes, definitely is. Now, I, I have nothing wrong with opposing views and, you know, uh, just like I'm sure everybody else would like to hear the other side of the story, so to speak. Um, I think what it is is you got to have a balance. you got to be able to strike the balance appropriately. Uh, some people, we have to admit, in the field of paranormal research, believe anything and everything that comes down the pike. And right. you know the type, you know, look at this orb, it's proof that, you know, yeah. Yeah, the dust that was floating through the room when you opened the door because, you know, nobody's been in an attic for 30 years, you know, but all of a sudden all of these orbs appear and, uh, you know, it's absolute proof that there's, you know, a ghost. But th- then there's, on the other hand, when you have something that's picked up flying through the room and stops and hovers in midair and, you know, the people just ignore it, you know, it, how, you get the same extremes. They'll right. stick their head in the I, sand. I think we kind of need those extremes. I think we need, you know, the, there, there is no middle ground to be found unless we have those. You know, I, I know that my father, who's had paranormal experiences, who will completely deny, he'll tell them to you uh, word for what happened, he'll tell you what he felt, he'll say, and he'll say, but it wasn't a paranormal experience. Well, what explains it? I have no explanation, but it wasn't a ghost. Yeah, um, you need those people to kind of give you the battlefield that you're playing on. You know, those, those kind of believe in everything, believe in nothing they help us establish kind of what is the middle ground. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> unfortunately, we have um, only a few more moments left before we have to break for the news, but uh, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, Isaac coming on. And um, we will be definitely back in, what, how, how long would you say, Maddie? Uh, we should be back at around 10.06. Okay. And then we'll uh, have a couple announcements. Okay. And our next guest. Excellent. Plenty of time to read so. those articles, so. All right. Like I said, I'm not used to piloting <laughs> this end of the ship. So, but uh, thank God we have Mr. Costa, you know, pushing all the buttons for us. Excellent, excellent. I'm getting punchy from punching all these buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want you to hold on for a minute, Chris, and uh, we'll bring you back up after the break, and uh, we'll bring up Mr. Uh, Isaac Marion, uh, the author of Warm Bodies. And uh, I want everybody here to uh, 
basically stay tuned and come back and listen to us after the break. This is Matt Loney's for Spooky South Coast on WPSM. Oh, God. It can't be. We do have a system. I'm sure I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. It's boring. You're boring, everybody. Quit boring, everyone. Welcome back to Hour 2 of Spooky South Coast. This is Matt Moniz here with Matt Koss in the studio. Tim Weisberg out on assignment. Uh, we have our content director, Chris Balzano, going to be our main interviewer tonight. Uh, second hour here, we have Isaac Marion, the author of Warm Bodies. And now if we could bring both of those guys up, Matty. I think uh, Chris actually has a few announcements. Ah. Things. Ah, yes. Some plugs. <laughs> Just wanted to... Just want to make a few things. We got some spooky things kind of going on in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the first thing is Spooky South Coast contributor and associate Spooky Crew member Carlson Chops Woods, uh, always a fan favorite, is holding a benefit dance this Friday, Friday the thirteenth, at Schuler News Function Hall in on set. I think it's to us. the American Salerno's. Cancer Society. I know. I'm a come on. I'm a city boy. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know your South Coast little words. <laughs> on set. It will be from 7 p.m. until 11 with light hours, a cash bar, and a DJ. Uh, and for more information, you can actually call the hall. The number is 508-291-6182. Um, and on Saturday, May 21st, South Coast toy and comic show promoter Steve Perry, who's been a guest a few times, will debut his new comedy club, Chuckleheads, at the Seaport Inn and Marina in Fairhaven. Doors will open at 7, and the tickets are only $15 for a full night of comedy. For more information or to purchase the tickets, you can actually go to www.chuckleheadscomedy.com. And I'll ever been in a library, looked at those books full of history and wonder, and thought to yourself, what a great place to play a round of mini golf. Well, this Sunday, March 15th, you'll get your chance. For only $5 a person or $20 a family for up to six people, you can play 18 holes inside the new Bedford Public Library the 100-year-old Pleasant Street branch. There will also be live music, a snack bar, and a Chinese auction. I still haven't quite gotten what a Chinese auction is, but there will be a Chinese auction. The event is being held, uh, is being put on by the Friends of the New Bedford Public Library, and all proceeds will go towards a teen room at the Howland Green branch in New Bedford South End. And I've got to be honest with you that when that teen room comes in, one of the books that they're going to need to kind of supply is warm bodies because I spent the last week and a half fending off uh, some of my students who have been dying to read this book after kind of hearing a little bit of a synopsis for me. So um, this is definitely kind of one of those books that's, I think, going to kind of cross lines and uh, cross demographics and maybe some uh, some teens are going to be into it. Do we have uh, Do we have Isaac on yet? Sorry, was that a question? I, <laughs> <laughs> well, not a question as much as uh, I just want to know whether you were with us. Uh, Isaac was uh, born in northwestern Washington uh, and lived in Seattle, in or around Seattle his whole life, installing heat ducts, 
guarding power plants and delivering deathbeds to hospice patients and supervising parental visits for foster children. Kind of an eclectic background there. Uh, he's not married, has no children, and did not go to college or win any prizes. Uh, and I know kind of having perused your website, you kind of take pride in that, the fact that you've got this, uh, this stuff out there and you're doing really well without kind of uh, any formal training in this. And Warm Bodies is your first novel. So let's welcome to the show Isaac Marion. Thank you. And uh, the first thing I kind of want to get into is, you know, there's been kind of an explosion um, of zombie media lately, TV shows, books, comic books, um, kind of revisiting even some of the old ones. And it seems like the first thing you really need to do, even with other, even, you know, aside from other uh, paranormal kind of topics, is you have to establish what are the rules of the zombies. Um, because we have slow-moving zombies, fast-moving zombies, zombies that don't have... Uh, any brain ability whatsoever, ones that are highly intelligent and can organize. Why don't we start out by talking about what are the rules for your zombie world? I went by pretty much the the, the classical zombie rules, which uh, I'm not sure if anyone agrees on what the most traditional is, but as far as I can tell, the, the standard um, like George Romero-based style where they are kind of what you see on Halloween toys and kind of the typical uh, shambling, slow, uh, grown, brain-eating zombie. And um, I use that template for for all the uh, everything that they do. The, the different, only difference is that they um, that the story is from their perspective. So while on the outside they still appear to have no brain function, it turns out that it's it's just because they don't really do anything that would indicate that they do. They don't really care about proving their intelligence. They just, all they care about is, is eating people. So it's sort of, on the surface, they appear traditional, but you get to hear their inner monologue a little bit, which changes changes the perspective on things. But the, the book is actually told from the zombie's perspective. Right. Then it's, it's first-person narrative from one of the zombies and who is, more or less a, a typical zombie at the beginning of the book and then gradually starts to uh, evolve a little bit in, in, in his, uh, his personal life <laughs> his, and eventually it starts to affect him physically as well. But um, at the beginning of the story, he's no different from the typical one other than having a slightly more interest in not being a zombie than, than the other ones do. And what, because I think one of the, the questions that people talk about all the time is, why are they eating? Uh, why are, you know, is it, is it a, they have to satisfy some biological need? Um, but for your zombies, it's kind of almost like a drug. And why is that? Well, the, the, the brain itself is, is treated sort of like a drug. The, the bodies that they eat, it's, right. they, he, the, the narrator doesn't understand why he has to do this because, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know where zombies came from because he just woke up one day with a blank memory and is finds himself in this situation. But but the the brains themselves they treat sort of as a drug because when they eat them they get memories for for a brief period of time. So they get they get um, they don't have any of their own memories other than a few you know what they've done since they became zombies. So they treat that as sort of a, a, a special experience to get to relive what it was like to be alive. 
And is that all of them? That's, I think that's one of the, the things that really moves the story forward is like, is it, is it, is R so different? And, and maybe we, sh- we should actually, you know, so it doesn't feel like we're telling inside jokes here. Maybe you should just kind of give a little bit of a, um, just kind of a little retelling, kind of a brief, uh, plot summary of what's going on in the book. Okay. Um, well, basically it starts out, it's narrated by this zombie who I think calls himself R because it's the only, it's the first letter of his name is all he can remember. And, um, when the story starts, he, uh, basically he doesn't know who he is or who he was before he died or, or where zombies came from or what caused this apocalypse that he did, that he's living in sort of a post-apocalyptic setting, but he doesn't know exactly what it was whether it was a combination of wars and disasters and diseases or whatever but he's sort of just this wandering ghost of, of a person he he has sort of this inner monologue going on about the whole thing but he doesn't he doesn't know what his place in the world is or what who he is or what he should be doing other than just that he knows he has to eat every so often and doesn't particularly enjoy it or wishes he didn't have to but it's just sort of trapped in this in this cycle and um, he lives in, a, in an abandoned airport with sort of this hodgepodge zombie society that they've formed where he's basically mimicking some of the, the general routines of a normal life, but none of them know why they're doing it or what it's for. It's sort of just like residual uh, instinct from when they were alive. And um, so the, the, he he's different at least than some of his immediate friends in that he doesn't enjoy his routines and he, he kind of has a longing for for being a person again because he is sort of just an empty shell at this point and um, that sort of the catalyst for that starting to happen is when he uh, ends up rescuing one of his potential victims instead of eating her and um, that sort of leads to a, a chain of events that causes some some strange forms of growth in him as as a as an individual and as a creature. Sorry, I lost you there for a second. And and so, you know, for for once again for people having how long after kind of the zombie apocalypse does this story take place? Because there's there's an entire civilization which is kind of, you know, entirely based upon survival in the post zombie world and it, and it seems pretty sophisticated or at least you know rudimentarily built up um how long is this supposed to take place after that well it's it's never really said directly it, it it's definitely at least a few decades but it's kind of Im- ambiguous as to when it actually happened or if there was a, a specific event it's it's sort of implied that it's just been a slow process of everything society breaking down over the course of some length of time so by the time this story happens, civilization is pretty much gone. It's just little enclaves of people um, trying to kind of survive long enough to, to try to build something back together, but all the infrastructure is gone and, and um, long enough that there's people who have, have lived there, who, like at least adolescents who have never known what the normal world was like. All right, we're going to take a break right now. Um, this is because we got to burn some of those uh, those nasty commercials, and we're going to be back in a few minutes with Isaac Marion, the author of Warm Bodies. We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of his zombie world and kind of the inspiration behind the story. So we'll be back in a few. 
welcome back to Spooky South Coast. I want to bring back up our uh, host for the evening, Mr. Christopher Balzano. If you're there, Chris, can you speak up? Yes, thank you for having me back there, Matthew. You're welcome there, Chris. Thank you for being back. Also, if anybody wants to Just call in, more, uh, if you want to throw out the numbers, Chris. Uh, Mr. Marion back on. Uh, Chris? I encourage people again to go to the site. Like I said, we have those three articles posted from uh, the three-headed monster uh, of the spooky crew. No article by Costa yet. Costa, when are you going to write something for us? I don't know. I need an idea. <laughs> we also uh, we also have something else up there, something that's uh, going to become a regular thing, and so uh, we decided to kind of start promoting it tonight, which is Tim's Take. Um, so there's a button on there. You can get kind of Tim's opinion on not only what's been going on in the week, but how the last show went and some thoughts on the guests and things like that to encourage people to go right on there and uh, and start reading Tim's blog. And Tim has assured me uh, that he is going to uh, be doing it on a weekly basis, so there should be plenty of kind of uh, content on there uh, for uh, for people to kind of get. Those of you who can't get enough Spooky South Coast, you're going to be able to get uh, Tim's ideas and thoughts. So and we also encourage people to you know sign right into there. We still have a good hour with, a, with an amazing guest. Get into the chat room. Uh, if you're not there yet, go into a... Uh, Click on the Spooky TV icon on the front page, and you'll be on. Um, the other thing I want to tell people is that, especially as we're talking or, or you know, when the show's over, to go to uh, the page we created for for Miss for, uh, for Isaac, um, which is www.spookysouthcoast.com backslash Marion, and you can actually watch a clip uh, that he created for the book. Um, so it's actually like a little trailer for the book itself, so you can actually get a little more of what's going on in it. Excellent. Thank you very much, Chris. No problem at all. Are we going to bring uh, Isaac back? As far as I know, he should be back on. I'm back. Excellent, Isaac. How are you? Still good. Good, good. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, it seems that um, more than kind of these other paranormal or supernatural creatures that kind of inhabit our media... Uh, zombies kind of lend themselves to metaphor. Uh, they kind of lend themselves to to deeper meaning. And you know, your zombies, as, as soon as kind of they, they uh, as, as soon as the, the dust settles, they seem to create a society, and it parallels the other society. And they they start unfortunately marrying and having to go to school and and and, and creating religion. Um, why do you think zombie uh, zombie lore does that more than other paranormal things? Um. My guess would be because it's it's um, most most zombie stories involve the entire population of the world being turned into this this creature, or at least most of them, and it ends up kind of taking over the world as we know it, which which allows you to kind of make all these parallels of, of maybe you know observations of things that that don't change um, when when people become zombies or kind of the, the similarities that are there. I think, I mean, they're used for a lot of metaphors. It's, it's I haven't, and, and there, I've heard of a couple of movies coming out recently that, uh, that take it in a little bit more unusual directions, but most of the metaphors that I've seen are pretty much the same metaphors. I think consumerism and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like mass, mass mentality kind of thing, which is, Fairly, fairly obvious because you know it's a, you're looking at hordes of, of people doing the same thing. It kind of creates an obvious connection to that. 
um, I think that it, there's a lot of different options of what aspects you could explore with it because especially if in, in a situation like this if you're telling it from their perspective there's a lot of uh, material in there when you imagine what what it would be like to live in this sort of anti-life society that's sort of the, the dark parallel to society as we know it it kind of brings out all the the dark side of, of civilization I'm not sure if you heard that last question. I think we're we're still getting some weird audio things. What did what did you watch to do research? Like, what was your inspiration for kind of the playground that you created? Well, I when I first started writing it, I I hadn't seen I'd seen a little maybe a couple of zombie movies here and there, but mostly was just sort of aware of the 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 creature as sort of a pop cultural phenomenon in itself, and um, I sought out, while I was in the process of writing and I sought out all the other all the all the major films, the Romero movies and 28 Days Later and kind of all the the uh, the ones that people are familiar with to kind of brush up on, on all the, uh, the zombie cliches and, and tropes that are involved so that I could kind of use them and exploit them for for humor or for or for uh, insight. So I pretty much watched them all. I mean, I watched all the the Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, all those Romero movies, um, all the all the mainstream ones, anyway. And which one do you think spoke to you the most? Because I, I do actually think your zombies are unique. I, I think that they, I mean, at least the, the idea that you know, even those who aren't kind of uh, haven't eaten brains that are getting inspiration, you know, there is this instinct to marry, like I said, and this instinct back to religion that I, I haven't seen in any of them. Where, where do you think that that, like, which one were you able to pull that from, or was that just completely your your kind of like, huh, you know, if we actually saw it from his perspective, this is what they would be doing? Well, I think, I mean, if I had to, to pick a movie where I've seen something like that, there's, there's hints of, of stuff like that in some of the Romero movies, like, um, I think it was Day of the Dead, where they capture some zombies and they, they observe them kind of repeating some echoes of their of their former lives and that's sort of what what I had in mind with, with these societies is that they they have sort of a general awareness of, of the world and they you know they recognize this, that's a building that's a car or something but they don't know what it's all right. about or who they were or anything so they sort of just it's sort of this residual memory loop where they just think they just kind of do the the basic functions of society that are programmed into everybody, which is, you know, you, you grow up, you get married, you go to church, you have kids, kind of this, this standard, uh, programming that, that, that we're all trained to do. <laughs> that sort of lingered on after they're, after they're dead. Yeah, and it, it's, 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 it's interesting looking through the, you know, the promotional material of reading the story myself. I think, you know, like I said at the beginning, my students have kind of been clamoring for it. You know, is your, is your, is your hope to kind of tap into that same, uh, you know, young adult through kind of early teen twilight crowd, or, or is this something that you kind of think is going to kind of transcend that? You know, I, 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 I still kind of surprised and, and confused why it, uh, is, is being considered young adult by, by some people anyway. I can, I can, I can understand the, the twilight comparison because Stephanie Meyer was, on the cover of a review, and you know, the Summit Entertainment is the same company that did Twilight, and they're they're making the movie of this book. So 
I understand that that comparison is pretty inevitable, but I don't right. quite understand the the young adult thing because you know some of the characters are teenagers, but they're uh, some of them aren't, and it's pretty dark. I mean, there's a lot of adult content in this book, lots of you know violence and sex and swearing and kind of stuff that I never would have thought would would anyone would consider like this is what this would, should go on the. Uh, Youth, a fourteen-year-old would be okay. <laughs> yeah, and and thematically also, I mean, it's it's not it's not about like high school drama or anything. It's it's fairly um, fairly serious intent, I think. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think that it's inaccessible to to young people by any means. It's a lot of stuff that would appeal to to younger people. But I definitely didn't write it with that demographic in mind, or or and it's sort of a surprise to me that that it's been pitched that way at times. Although, you know, my dorky, once again, my dorky teacher outlook on things, Romeo and Juliet is taught the freshman year uh, of high school in most uh, school curriculums, and this story is definitely supposed to parallel that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if anyone would call Romeo and Juliet young adult fiction, though, would they? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's when they teach it, fresh, freshman year of high school, which, which is usually beyond most of them, which is why they have to go to, you know, watching movies about it along with the, the text. Because, yeah. I mean, you do cover some, and I don't think the darkness that you cover is just necessarily the fact that they're, you know, eating brains and intestines and, and things like that. And, you know, you really kind of go into some pretty dark relationships between parents and kids, between... Um, between you know society and things like that, what, what, which which of those was would you say was like your driving force for this? I mean, which one of those did you want to exploit the most? Well, those those two things are kind of are maybe sort of fifty fifty because there's mm-hmm. there's definitely a lot a lot about the the parent and sort of the the children being raised in general, raised by by their parents or by society in general, that was definitely on my mind at the time because. The, the job that I was working while I was writing that was um, supervising visits with foster children and their and their biological parents. So every day I was kind of being exposed to the the extremes of of bad parenting and kind of what what's being done to to the next generation of people and kind of what results it's going to have. So that was a big thing on my mind is you know what's going to happen to all these kids and and how much of that is is society to blame for and kind of wanted to dig into those those root causes of 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 the problems that we that we face and i think that a lot of the, the roots of social ills in general are, are are fairly small intimate causes from just right. the relationships between people and, and in their in their youth and which of those societies do you think is better? Who, who's doing a better job, do you think? The zombies or the uh, the people behind the walls in your book? <laughs> well, I mean, I'd have the to The quote-unquote walls, I should say, right? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, definitely not trying to suggest that that uh, the, the living people were equally bad as the zombies. I mean, the zombies were our you know, complete lack of, of empathy, complete lack of passion or anything positive really and just sort of like a, a pale echo of, of what life is supposed to be about. The parallels were more not to suggest that this is no better than this, but sort of that 
it's not as far off as you would think in in some cases, and and if you're not careful, like you, you, it can easily start to resemble a, a, a mindless horde of of pre-programmed creatures. Now, a lot of the people that listen to our show are investigators or people who kind of go out and seek these kinds of things. What are, what are they going to find from the book? What's, what is it going to give the people who are investigators or who, who uh, you know, consider themselves experts in this? Should they be focusing more on the, on the, the supernatural part of it or on the love story part of it? Or? What, experts are in what area? <laughs> I didn't say our audience was an expert. <laughs> but uh, there, there, a lot of people who listen to this show are people who spend a lot of their time reading nonfiction. Uh, who are paranormal investigators who deal with the supernatural in kind of a let's go out there and get it kind of way. Um, okay. What do you think they're going to get from this? Well, I don't know that it, 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 there's definitely supernatural elements in it. I, I, I don't think they're going to learn your information exactly. I, it's not written as, um, as like from a scientific perspective or, or really trying to explain zombies from from like a rational point of view it's more it's i guess more spiritual or, or metaphorical in that area uh it just kind of it's implied it towards the end you know what what they have some theories on what what it might be all about but i'm not sure i wouldn't i wouldn't read this book expecting to uh you know learn what might cause a zombie apocalypse or anything it's it's not as uh, explicit as that Right, but you know, to be food for thought in there. Excellent, and they're making a movie of this. What was that? They're making a movie of warm bodies. Yeah, it's it's in it's in process. It's looking more and more likely that it's that it's really going to happen. Excellent. So, what are some of the other projects you've been working on? Um, I have a book of short stories that I've finished writing. Um, I'm hoping to get some some interest in that. Although my agent keeps telling me that nobody wants to buy short stories, so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I, I, I'm done writing it. It's all compiled, and I'd like to release this book, but um, but I have to wait to hear his opinion. It, it has a a story in it that's sort of a prequel to Warm Bodies, which I'm hoping can serve as sort of a, a hook to get people to pay attention to it. Which, when, since it's otherwise pretty non uh non genre type stories. So I guess we'll see what happens with that. But other than that I have a, a lineup of ideas for, for new novels that I'm excited to get started on once I get some downtime. Hey Chris. Yeah. We have a caller on the line. Oh excellent. Well why don't we uh take the call? You're on the air with Spooky South Coast. Hey Matt, how are you? All right. How are you Lulan? Oh, not too bad at all. Um, I actually, I like the book. I'm, I'm actually going to order it on uh, Amazon. I, you can actually look inside the book and read the first few pages. And I really thought it was um, a different twist on the whole zombie thing because, um, I mean, as far as I can tell, you're inside the zombie's head throughout the book. Um, and I just found that really enjoyable. And I have to say, I am a paranormal investigator, but I don't only read nonfiction. I, I actually do read a lot of fiction. Um, but I also think, like, a person who wants to write should 
be reading a lot of everything anyways. Oops, did I lose you guys? <laughs> no, we just weren't sure who should come in first. <laughs> You're all looking at each other with blank looks. Or not, because none of us can actually see each other. But, you know, Moniz said that he doesn't read fiction, though. Is, now, Moniz, is this something that you'd be willing to pick up, a little bit of a zombie love story? You don't want me to answer that. I don't read <laughs> fiction. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I think I'm not hearing someone. Ah, uh, you cannot hear the Skype. Oh, you can't hear Chris? Yeah. She nope. can't hear Chris. Oh, darn. <laughs> so let me talk bad about Luann for a well, moment. Well, that makes it difficult. But he's, he's just so talking bad about you. Oh, no. Chris would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> he knows I'd beat him up. But, you know, I really did just want to say that I, I thought it was really great. I'm actually going to buy it, and I look forward to hearing the rest of the story. All right. Thank you for calling, Luann. Well, Have you. a great night, guys. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. No. So, Anisa, as someone who has been kind of, you know, listening to what we've been talking about, do you have any kind of questions about the story or anything like that that you think that kind of uh, the audience, like sometimes feel like having read some of these, I kind of know what's on the inside, but but from an outside perspective, is there anything they feel you need to know? That I need to know? No. Well, <laughs> all right, excellent. <laughs> excellent. So, so Isaac... You you were saying that your stories are not always, uh, or at least uh, the collection you're working on right now isn't necessarily as focused on uh, on the paranormal, or at least on horror. So you're not a horror writer you, by by trade. This kind of just kind of fell out of the air. Yeah, I think the majority of my my stories have some some element of, of paranormal or supernatural to them, um, but definitely not. I definitely wouldn't consider myself a horror novel. I mean, I don't really see. Warm Bodies is really a horror book anyway. I mean, it has all the, the elements of one, but um, mood-wise and, and tonally, tonally, I don't think it really strikes me as horror, although there, there are sections of it anyway that, that are meant to be fairly disturbing. But, um, but yeah, most of my stories are... They're, they have elements of, of, of all that, but they're kind of um, in, a, in more of a... a, a abstract way they're, they're all pretty different so it's hard to hard to define it but um it definitely isn't like just a lot of stuff about zombies the only other zombie or or really monster based fiction i've written is is the, the prequel to warm mm -hmm. bodies and other than that it's all kind of just a, a hodgepodge of uh strange scenarios and and little little vignettes and, and how much of the the kind of the details that are in there are that metaphor? I mean, how many of them are just kind of seems to move it forward? Because it seems you know you could really take a lot of uh, a lot of difference out of things like you know the fact that they're they're pulled at the airport, or the fact that they're still trying to work on environmental issues even though the world is is kind of coming to an end. How much of that is intentional? How much is just kind of the the the, the driving engine of the story? Well, I mean, most of it is intentional. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that I had to just kind of make a choice on. Like I knew I wanted uh, a zombie encampment of some sort, and I, and I had to decide where 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 do they set up. And I found kind of writing this book and also the the prequel story. It's sort of it's like a, you have all of society, a large metropolis area, sort of as a metaphorical playground to to sort of they come across all these different things that have been 
changed by by the end of society and, and, and sort of get to use them for little subtle jokes or, or little uh, right. little messages or something and so most of the most of the choices made like from everything from the setting to you know the vehicles that people drive or the characters' names is all kind of um, connected to, to something whether or not some of them are, are too obscure that anyone ever noticed I'm not sure but I at least had something in mind when I was when I was writing it. Oddly enough, I didn't even make the Romeo and Juliet uh, connection, you know, with his name R and her name Julie until um, until you know, later this week when I was work- looking through some of the promotional stuff. I'm like, ah, I feel like a complete idiot. How did I possibly miss that? And what kind of a, a teacher can I be if I don't even catch that in this in this book here? My brother just said the same thing yesterday, and he he's read it a couple times and for for the last couple of years, and he didn't know until he read a review about it that there was any uh, parallel there. So, you know. Right. All right, so I don't feel as dumb as I did a few minutes ago. No. I mean, the, the Romeo and Juliet thing is kind of, it's played up in a lot of the articles about the book and reviews because it's kind of, it's a good entry point to talk about it, but I don't think it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly subtle uh, allusions, I think. Um, it's not really meant to be like, you know, Romeo and Juliet and zombies, where one of those uh, literary mashup books or anything like that. Right, right. And, and again, in your work, uh, like our, our guest for the first hour, has a very tight connection uh, to music. It, it seems to be kind of, uh, you know, what R holds on to and what kind of uh, connects uh, the zombie and, and, and Julie. What, 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 kind of, uh, what kind of music did you want to set the tone for this, and how did you, how did you know it was going to play a role? Um, wh- sorry, what kind of music what? I didn't catch that. Oh, just talk about the role of music kind of in the story. Um. Well, I think, I mean, it's it sort of, I use it to, uh, at least as some sort of commentary on, on the characters. I mean, the, the choices of music uh, sort of reflect something like the, the between R and, and Julie, they kind of have little little arguments about it or, or discussions, and, and uh, it's sort of just a, a subtle running theme, and is that, that they both they both listen to a lot of, older kind of classical things like Frank Sinatra and the Beatles and things from sort of a, an earlier, more innocent time. And um, I think the music in general is, is used in sort of a, a, a whimsical way when in sort of under, underscore the bleakness of, of this is like having civilization ended, the, the thought of you know, all this culture and, and progress that humanity's made is now suddenly gone. And so music is sort of like a sad um, nostalgia for, for a time where people had time to make music and, and to care about things like that, whereas now it's all just about finding food and, and staying alive. And what do you think the culture is much... Kind of like, what do the zombies miss most, <laughs> if you will? What do, what do the, the real people miss? I mean, you always get that kind of like, a, like you were saying, nostalgia with these kinds of things. You know, and, and there's kind of these moments in the book, especially towards the end, where the people who are doing the scavenging for food who aren't zombies kind of reflect back at, you know, is this enough? You know, is it even worth it? Um, I can't remember the character who actually... Uh, becomes ours uh, brain inspiration but you know what what do you think each side misses the most what are they searching for 
Well, I think uh, the human side, they, I mean, there's this whole list of things that are obviously missed, but, but in, in this little city that we get to see, it's sort of, there's sort of a generation gap where the, the younger generation who is, you know, aware of, of the past, but, but um, it, they never really got to fully live in it, they are missing the fact that that society as they know it now doesn't really have any room for for joy. It's it's, it's just purely practical because all all the energies are being used towards trying to stay alive and trying to you know just the basic basic levels of hierarchy of needs you know just food and shelter and things like that and nobody is is um, expending any any resources on sort of the higher functions of life fulfillment and happiness or any of those things are sort of swept under the rug in the, in the rush to to not die which is sort of they understand that that's necessary in some to some extent but it's sort of like they're wondering isn't there some way we can we can have both of these things and, and not completely crush out like the color from life in, in the rush to to you know get more food and, and build higher walls so the younger characters are all kind of longing for a, a society that's a little more balanced in, in the pragmatic pursuits with more deeper pursuits. And some of them are, are not able to reconcile those two and, and end up going to darker places. And the, as far as the zombie side, they don't really have the very nuanced articulation of what they want it's just that a few of them know that they're missing something and they can they can feel that there's a a lack in in their in their routines and their repetitions and as they sort of choose to follow that that desire then it sort of inspires some of the others around them because their whole society is based on following the leader so if a few of them sort of break ranks and lead in that direction and it, it sort of incites this, this sort of revolution. I think we lost Chris for a minute. Oh. But he should be back. Yeah, the wonders of Did modern I talk, talk in the sleep? <laughs> no. Uh, the, one, the wonders of Skype. Yeah. That's what that is. Okay. And we're... Uh, We've only got a few more moments left, but uh, is, do you have any plans for a sequel to the book? I don't plan on writing an actual sequel novel. The, the, the prequel story that I wrote is almost a novel. It's, it's about 100 pages, and it could be considered a novella maybe, but um, I don't plan on writing a, another entire novel in that story. I'm hoping that that prequel story can see the light of day at some point. But I think that it would be milking the cow dry to try to get a whole other story arc out of out of that, considering the way it ends. And I'm just kind of ready to move on and stop being uh, asked about zombies everywhere I go. <laughs> you don't want to be pigeonholed into that yeah. one, one thing? I, I find it kind of surprising. I, I didn't really ever expect to have started my career with, with a book about zombies and have to... Um, 
be explaining myself to people all the time what it, what it means and what it's about and kind of what my future plans are for writing because it definitely is a, a pop culture thing that has a lot of uh, connotations as to what genre it should be and what style it should be and and it's kind of hard to break out of those molds even if the book itself is very different and people see it a certain way so if I wrote another book in that I think it would be I would never get to leave the uh the horror genre. What I'd be would, lucky to escape it now, I think. What would you like to write about? What would be your dream book to write out, write if you had the opportunity? Well, I don't really know that there'd be a single story or anything that I would like to write. I mean, as far as the style of it, it's kind of my tastes are kind of kind of all over the place. I mean, I, I. I grew up on Stephen King, but now I read more, more literary kind of stuff. Um, I, but I include, you know, elements of that of Stephen King type stuff in a lot of the more literary stuff I write. I think the next book, the next two books that I have planned, are both very different from each other, but they're they're both kind of, um, kind of a, a hybrids of of sort of obscure abstract kind of ideas mixed with very down-to-earth realistic scenarios and then kind of blended in with a lot of kind of bizarre um, paranormal elements so I think I'll probably just be writing stuff like that and hope that uh, hope that people care all right. Uh, Chris, I, I believe you may be there. we got about two minutes left. Do you have any questions left for Isaac? I know. I just want to stress to people again, um, they can go to our site, uh, Spooky South Coast. They can actually watch a trailer for the book, which is an amazing uh, promotional thing uh, that I think a lot of other writers should start kind of taking advantage of. Um, it looks like it went through a few uh, few versions before you found the one you like, but we've got that uh, we've got that playing on our site. I encourage people to go and uh, and check that out and check out the book. Books available everywhere. Yeah, as far as I know. Excellent, excellent. So, well, thank you very much for coming on. Um, you know, uh, we, we'd love to have you kind of back on if you're if you kind of touch upon our vein again. I think that a lot of our uh, our listeners and people in the chat room have kind of been uh, sparked by this, and they're going to be going out and getting the book. And so, we we'd love to have you back on if you decide to uh, to try the horror hat on again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Excellent. So, that was Isaac Marion. His website uh, for those of you guys who are going to check it out is. Um, HTTP, it's actually burningbuilding.blogspot.com. Uh, you can kind of read some things about warm bodies as well as some of the other stuff he's working on, a lot of the videos he's got posted up there. And, uh, also, and IsaacMarion.com is the more, more relevant website. Has oh, excellent. Excellent. All right, guys, we really want to thank you all for uh, joining in on us. Uh, and uh, hopefully, Chris, we'll be able to talk to you at some point again uh, next week. Uh, this is Matt Moniz in for Tim Weisberg and for the god behind the board, Matt Costa. I want to have you all please stay spooktacular, as Tim would say. Have a good night, folks. Thank you. <laughs>